Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, Paul, an apostle, uh, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, uh, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Today uh, we're going to begin uh, a series that will take us all the way through the whole book of Galatians. You're not going to get it all today. And the, the reason that I have chosen it, one reason was so that we, we do looked at Moses and we've been in the Old Testament was to just rediscover some of the incredible truths that sit with us in the New Testament. And the other actually is to try and catch a little bit of Paul when he is writing to these churches. Theologians actually say in regard to Paul that he comes alive more in this book than any other book, which is interesting. We don't know why they say that. When we get to heaven, we'll ask them why they say that. But they actually say that there is a sense in which Paul's emotions, when writing to this book, get suddenly transformed into a level that no other book that Paul writes does. Which is quite interesting. This is what John Piper says. John Piper says, you can't read the first ten verses without feeling that something utterly important is at stake. I changed his words here a little bit because he used a phrase that I wouldn't. He said, you can't read Galatians and think, well, that's an interesting piece of theology. Because of the issues that are raised in it and because of the central truths that you will find in it. But here's what the Apostle Paul was trying to do when writing to the Galatians. He knew that there were some issues which we will discover while we were, look, while we were looking at the book and when we're going through the book. But what he's trying to, 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 to see, uh, to get the church to, to realize that if they respond back to Paul and they change their lives in regard to the thinking that Paul is bringing, then suddenly the faith that they have will become stronger than it has ever been before. That the emotional force of their lives will be transformed and they will not be a lukewarm people that is swayed by all sorts of doctrines, but they will be red hot for God. And if you want to know, well, what does this pastor think? This pastor would like to lead a church where people are red hot for God. Do you know why? Make the job easy. Make the job easy. This is what a a Scottish minister said, P.T. Forsyth. He said, the secret of the Lord, the secret of the Lord is with those who have been broken by the cross, but healed by the Spirit. I love that phrase. When I first read it, I thought, that is outstanding, really. And and what Paul discovers in, in, to, in the church in Galatia is, is exactly these two things that he needs to face with them. And he realises that a person can only get right with God if they've understood the cross well. 
And he also understands that the only way to get right with God and understand the cross is by the Spirit's power. That the two actually go together. So when the Apostle Paul is thinking about the Holy Spirit and saying, you've replaced it with something else, to the Apostle Paul, he's saying, well, that's strange. What are you doing? And when, they, when the Apostle Paul is arguing with them and they're saying, well, you, you, you're replacing the cross, he's going, why are you replacing the cross? What on earth are you, do you think that you're doing? That actually, what he's catch, trying to catch hold of is if we get those two things in focus, we are utterly transformed. One, a focus on the cross. Secondly, empowered by the Spirit because of it. And he said the two belong together. Looking at the cross, and he's saying this is the issue of the book of Galatians. It's the issue of us, isn't it, really? The issue of us is a great understanding of the cross and a wonderful empowering of the Spirit to do the work of the cross. It's quite simple, isn't it, really? If we get those two things, we would be really transformed, and so would our community. So my hope is that you'll be stirred by this great book and that you will fall in love with the person that Paul is recommending to the Galatians. So let's look at Paul's greetings and what was at the heart of his message. If we begin um, with the first five verses, we'll, I'm going to just go over it quickly and then just focus in on one or two things. I'll look at the whole and then come back to the parts. Paul, in verse 1, lays claim to a unique authority of an apostle. And he says, I'm not dependent on other people because it has come from Christ and God the Father. This is something that has been given to me by God. I'm not coming here and saying, well, actually, I'm a super chef or some sort of superstar or anything like that. He's coming and saying, no, Jesus has given me this job. And in verse 2, Paul says that the brothers stand with him behind this letter. That they're not, they're, they are confirming both his calling and his apostleship, and also they're standing with him and saying, yeah, come on, get the letter in too. That's a wonderful thing is to know that your brothers are behind you. But that's what he was, that's the context here, they're standing with him. And the message which he has, obviously, is uniting the two. So the apostles writing but these people are saying, yeah, this is our message too. We want to walk with that. We want to own this. This is what we want to, we want to do. What we grasp here is that what the Bible describes as this letter is truth. And Paul's doing that because he's seen that later on, you get, as the book opens, you'll find out that they've got themselves into bondage. So he's writing to set them free. We'll come back to that in a little while. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail. Hey, look, the book sets you free. The book will set you free. And then you move to verses 3 and 5, and it may be summed up like this. Grace comes to you, therefore glorify God. That wonderful? That's a great description, isn't it? What, what do, how do you describe a connect group? Ah, oh, easy. Grace comes to you, and we glorify God. That's it. It's... If we don't understand what grace has come to us, actually, we won't glorify God. How do you wind up worship? What you do is you have an electric contraption under every seat that the pastor controls randomly. And every now and again, 
Rose suddenly shoots her hands up into the air and leaps around because Nigel has the power of the button. Or we try and say as a church, church, our, our aim is this. If we can understand grace, worship will not be a problem. Do you know that if you go into a worship leaders conference, they'll say, you can't drive people into worship. You can't. And people do do this. Can't stand up. All you need to do is worship God, you rotten lot. Oh, okay. No, come on. Once we've understand grace, our feet go, our arms go, the smile goes, everything, because we want to glorify God, because the grace that has come. Goes on. Says, for Christ died for our sins and freed us from the present age. We'll look at that. And then verse 4 is the foundation. The death of Christ for our sin, this new freedom that comes. So actually what happens in five, those five verses is you get the whole book. This is what the Apostle Paul does. He says, look, this is what I'm going to tell you about. And now I'm going to tell it about you longer. Okay? Which is what happens. So although this is a formal greeting... It actually is sort of getting in there and saying, look, this is what's going to come. So if we can knock the slide over, what does it mean then to be an apostle? If we go back in verse 1 and we look at some of these in detail, Paul calls him an apostle. That's an arrogant thing to say, isn't it? Well, the one means the one who is sent or the sent one. Here's the sense whether you think this is arrogance or not. The Apostle Paul would not be writing this or doing this if he was not sent. Because that's the stirring thing that he's, that he's behind him. He's doing it because, because Jesus has commissioned him. He's not doing it because he thinks that I need power or position or, or whether I, I'm looking for a career and actually I could look after these churches in Galatia or Asia Minor at all. He isn't. He's saying that, Jesus has sent me, therefore I'm going to do it. It's the motivating, Jesus sent me, I'll do it. I mean, he's just being obedient. But what is the task of the apostle? Well, we're not told here. And you have to come back and look at it. And we haven't got time to do this whole thing about Ephesians 4 apostles and that sort of stuff. But if you look in scripture, they are primarily what the Bible would describe as foundation layers. They are church planters. They give identity to the church. Historically, those that received Jesus as, as their authentic Messiah were formed, weren't they, into a radical new community that never existed before. Suddenly, it's their birth. Woof, what's this? This is the new community. This is what it looks like. Whoa, what, what, how, what are we going to do with this? You know, suddenly there's all these people that have been birthed out of, of Pentecost. My goodness, now what are we going to do? How does it work? How are we going to do all that? What are you going to do with them? Do we feed them? Do we not? How do we organize them? All that sort of stuff. And it's interesting, just evangelists to note, that the Pentecost, it doesn't say that what happened with those 3,000 people is that they were just converted. It said that they were added. So 3,000 were added. So there was an adding to what? They were added in obedience to Peter's sermon. 
Yeah, they were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit, they formed a new, new society. And then who shaped it? Who would shape this new society? Would they do it? No, they didn't shape it. What it says then by, the, by Acts 2.42 is that they were shaped by the apostles' doctrine. These apostles shape what it looked like. They shape these individual lives. They shape what the church looked like. They shape the vision of what the church would be. They got involved in making sure that this thing looked like it was designed to look like. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 tells us that, they, that the church was built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. So these, these were people that would come and shape the church. And actually, if we are, are to be a successful people, then we still need apostolic shaping. It's designed to be that way. We need to be shaped. It's that we need to have a prophetic foundation. We need to have that sort of thing. Now, I know there are all sorts of tensions and problems and historical things that you think, oh, bleh, and all that sort of stuff. But one sometimes has to come down and say, come on, I know that. Now, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? So the Apostle Paul was coming as a church planter, a foundation layer. He was coming as a shaper of the thing into the church as one sent by Jesus Christ. So let's move on. See, I'm not even doing that. I don't know why. So then, therefore, as as he comes, the apostle, he comes with an authority that he's carrying with his words. If we can stop and absorb this for a, a moment, the implications for what the apostle Paul is saying to the Galatians and therefore us is quite huge. In a while, I don't know whether... David will touch on it the next time that he preaches. But Paul will argue in regard to his authority. But I'm just going to assume that we agree that he's got authority here. And I don't want to touch David's sermon really because then he'll thump me. But what it means is that when Paul was writing to the Galatians, he was coming with a level of authority, which is exactly the same level of authority that we read the book of Galatians with today. I don't know whether you realize that the Apostle Paul is still speaking today to you and I as he was speaking then. That when you are reading it, you are reading this guy who is writing to you, to me. And what he, what he says in, in chapter 1 and verse 1 is that this his apostle speaks of the authority of the one who sent him. So therefore, not only am I reading this book with the sense of the apostle Paul speaking to me, but I'm reading it one back as the one who sent the apostle Paul to say those words to him. So as Jesus is sending the apostle Paul into the churches in Galatia to say, come on, speak to these churches, he is sending the apostle Paul to speak exactly the same words as us, which means that Christ is speaking through the book of Galatians to us. Do you know, I, I find the modern church quite, um, sometimes I, I, I do wonder about it and scratch my head. Well, I scratch my head about me, so I'm supposed to, I will scratch my head about the church. Because generally, you know, Christians look for some sort of what I call some sort of message, you know, if I can have a, just a message from the Lord or a revelation 
from the Lord. Or maybe if only I could have a dream or a vision. And sometimes I've even had people that have said to me, I am going to this meeting for a prophetic word. I think, can you imagine the poor guy if you said that that was preaching? Oh, by the way, there are 700 people that are here waiting for that, just that individual word to speak to the. He's never going to come out the pul- from behind the pulpit, is he? Because of the weight of people that have this expectation, they're all waiting for a word from the Lord. Can you imagine the Brighton Conference? 5,000 people, and on the way on the train, and in the planes and all that, they're all thinking, this week I will get a word from the Lord. You wouldn't want to prepare, would you? Because you're bound to mess it up. But can you imagine what would happen if somebody said, don't bother about that, guys. All you've got to do is read the Bible. It's all there. All you've got to do is just read the Bible. The, uh, you know, you look, see, you looked at me then exactly like I think that if I was sitting in your front room and said the same thing that you look at me. You looked at me as if he's, and thought he's, got, he's on the moon or something. But actually, often people seek counsel and words and prophecies and dreams and whatever, and they forget this one thing. They've only got to read the Bible to find where the answer is. And they don't really want the easy answer. They They want the funny glowworm answer. You can read the Bible and find exactly what you need. We need a discipline, submission to the apostles' doctrine in the contemporary church. We need people that will say, I will submit to this. I will read it. I will obey it. I will live it. We need, we need churches that will submit Everything to Scripture, and that Scripture is the scrutiny on which we live. And sometimes, even in charismatic churches, we need to stop being so daft and stop being so silly. Because actually, I think a submission to apostles' doctrine in our society is very rare. What were the apostles teaching? They were teaching you how to live. They were teaching you how to die. They were teaching you how to work. They were teaching you how to be married and how to have children. And it's all found in Scripture. But if I drag myself onto that meeting, I just might get a little prophetic word about my... It's there. It is there. For us to have... And we can live as if the instructions of the apostles sort of don't carry much weight, really. What carries weight is, in a moment, it will come. And suddenly, what, and what happens is that you get a song that appears. And if I take three lines from this verse and seven words from that one and half of Dave Simpkins' sermon, the, the, sorry, his prayer, and Rupert's notice and combine it together, it means that I can marry the superwoman Jordan. Model Jordan. So, No, he doesn't. But actually, do you know how many people do that sort of thing? 
a huge amount of people, particularly men. They're not admitting it to it, but anyway, it's what happens. If we want Jesus to be Lord of our life, then we have to put Scripture in the prominent place that Jesus places in the life of the Apostle Paul. I sent you, I'm speaking to you, you say what I'm saying. That was it. I found it very difficult to, come to write this without examining my own life. Because I started to look at things, and I started to look at this, I started to look at Nigel. Just compare football on TV with how much I read the Bible. And I felt bad about it. So I thought, you must miss this out, the sermon. Because I realized, I felt absolutely sure that I actually confess to you that I have watched more football on TV than I've read my Bible. And I feel appalled at that with myself. I have found this whole Facebook thing extraordinary. I do not understand it. It is an enigma to me. It is just the most peculiar thing that I've ever counted in my life. But I want to suggest to you there are more people, there are Christians that do Facebook more than they face the Bible. And you think, what is this? What is the most prominent thing in your life? Well, the most prominent thing in my life is my Facebook entry. Well, where does the Bible figure? Well, I can fit that in. But you fitted in 79 references and all the things. And I don't care that you don't like eggs. <laughs> what is that? I had an egg. I don't like it. What? What are you? Why does the world need to know that you don't like eggs? But it's on there. You've told the whole world. But when was the last time that you had somebody place... So I'm very tempted to do the alternative that I will only make an entry if it is scripture. Wouldn't we read, why don't we do that? Why are we writing mundane, trite stuff when we've got the word of God that speaks out? Then I looked at this. I realised, how did I spend my summer? I spent my summer reading four novels on Julius Caesar. I was sitting on a beach, which is what you're supposed to do. And I just felt God speak to me. And this is what he said to me. And I, and I felt absolutely, well, I didn't want to hear it. And what God said to me was this. He said, Nigel, and, uh, yes, Lord. So, and so, do you like the, the, the boat going? Yes, I like the boat going. He said, do you realize that you know now more about Julius Caesar than you do about me? And I argued, don't be so stupid, I'm on holiday, Lord. I'm just having a rest, I just want a break. I don't want to get up in the morning. But actually, it was true. It was true. And then you get this sort of thing that you get this, and will the truth set you free? And then I'll say something like this. I don't know whether you do this, because then I, you, you end up with this sort of like argument that goes on. I think, do you know how, how painful it would be, Lord? Because I'm just sitting on, you know, with the plastic thing, with the lid up like that and the towel on and all that sort of stuff, with thousands of others that are just doing that, looking at the thing. For me to be sitting there, like, you know, I'm just on holiday in Mallorca reading the words. 
You just don't you know how painful that you could do? And I felt, I felt God say to me, but not half as painful it is for, for me to sit here and watch you reading that stuff. And I believe also it's not all our fault. I believe that our teachers and our preachers and our churches today need to face up to the consequences of the word of God. If you meet the average preacher, you say to them, do you believe in the authority of the Bible? They say yes. And then you say, and what do you do in your meetings? Well, well, we fall over a lot. What? Well, we just pray for people. We just put their hand on their head and we pull like they go whoosh and they line over there and then we do that wavy thing over the top and we will go around like this. And you say, well, did anybody... Pre-? No, but we had a wonderful time. Well, what's most important then? Actually, what's most important is me cleaning the carpet than the scripture is. That's the fact. The other side of that one is, is that I, I, I don't know if you noticed that you can get churches where the communion cloth is more prominent than, than the scripture that, that is behind it. Well, it's a way you fold it and you do that sort of stuff and then you point and click on over them. There. And you, and, and, and you think, what's happening with the communion cloth here? And, and somebody said, we're leaving the church. Why? Because you folded the communion cloth up wrong. Well, what's going on? Where's scripture gone? And then what they do as well is that scripture becomes something of, you know, like a counseling thing. And so somebody sees you and they say, you know, please, you know, pastor, we'd like to see you. And they say, oh, I'll rub this on. And they sort of, it's almost sort of just lie there. I've got this little bit. I'll just pour it out. It's from the Psalms. And you just rub their back and they go, oh, it's lovely. And you go, bless you, my son. And they're off out. And you think, and you think what has the church become? I mean, I look at them and I go, ooh. And the problem is that we have lost that. That we believe in the authority of Scripture and living it. Where does that leave us as a church? I believe it leads us into old and also new traditions and practices that make us shallow. We just become shallow. And it is no consequence that a reformation and renewal came to the church in the 16th century because John Calvin and Martin Luther returned to Scripture. And when preachers preach the word and churches read the word and and churches obey the word, then I believe our experience will be exactly the same as Luther and Calvin. That we will see a people that returns to the word, the Bible will break loose from a dusty position on our shelves and it will change the world. Because we'll be people of the word of God. Now I know that I've got a long way to go before I become a good preacher and a good teacher and a good pastor. Well, can I have a goal? Please, can I, don't frown at me. Let me finish the statement at the back there. Can I have a goal? And my goal would be this, that the preachers, the teachers, the people of Gateway Church would not just say, yeah, well, we believe in the Bible, but that actually we submit to it in all of our lives. We live it, we read it, we study it, we love it, we enjoy it, that we are radically different because we are people of the word of God. And I think it's a matter of humility and submissiveness to it. I think when Paul said, Paul, Galatians 1, an apostle not from men, through men, but through Jesus Christ, he, he was actually saying, no, 
I'm just looking for Jesus to speak to me, to speak through me. I just want Jesus to speak to me. Can I open the word? Jesus speaks. What? I know. Open the word. Jesus speaks. We should feel starved if we've not read the word. We should feel starved if we come to church and the, ch- and the preacher hasn't preached the word of God. We should feel starved if amongst our charismatic worship somebody hasn't read something from scripture. We, would, we think, come on, it'll be me then, I will bring it. So if we're going to build a vibrant and effective church, then one of the things that at its foundation must be the word of God. We must build it on the word of God as Jesus is speaking to us. Verse 2, little slide, makes two additions in the claim to authority. In verse 1, first Paul says that all the brothers were with him and therefore endorsed his message. The other authority distinguishes from the other is that he writes the church the, to the churches at Galatia. Then Galatia was a Roman province that stretched from Pontus to, uh, on the Black Sea to Pamphylia on the Mediterranean. He cut through the middle of Asia Minor in what is today Turkey. So there you are. So the churches of Galatia could be churches at uh, Poseidon, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derbe, which Paul started on his first missionary journey. But then there's another side to it. The other side is that we know about those churches. But what we are unsure of is, is that to the north there of Galatia, there was another handful of churches that are called the unknown churches because we know very little about them apart from their very existence. But what we have to keep wide here in our minds is that when this letter is coming, the reason that it is a good letter to use is that it was for many churches. But then the negative side of this, if, if then you think that Paul's writing to many churches, that also meant that the, the, the problem that they were facing was widespread. So let's conclude this then. Last slide. Chupumph. Grace to you and glory to God. Let's look at that and focus it back in the authority from first one. We, we see the offer of grace and peace to the sinful Galatians, and we realize that's people like you and me. Grace has come to sinful people like you and me. We see early on in those verses that Christ given himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, which we'll come back to, according to the will of God. The penalty for my sin was dealt with by Jesus. He extended an offer of grace and peace to me. We see that the cross supports the gospel. We see that it brings a great deliverance. And then Paul goes on one. And he just breaks forth at the end, doesn't he? He said Paul goes in, the theologians say that he breaks forth into a doxology to praise God. Where he says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't know whether you've ever been brought up in a formal church, but I was brought up in a formal church where at the start of the church we sang the introit. The end, we always sang something called the doxology. Now, years ago, the doxology was a burst of praise from God. 
And what happened was, historically in churches, and we made it very, very formal, is that as the church went on through their services, suddenly people began to feel the presence of God. So then the preacher began to preach and people got stirred by God. And then there was a sense of singing that last hymn. And then people thought, we don't want to go. So there was like a spontaneous praise of God that came out from the people. And, and some pastor thought, hey, that's a good idea. We'll build that in. And it became the doxology. It became the burst of praise at the end of the service. It was never like that. It was something of a move of God on people. They, they'd done the formal book, but they couldn't go because they were so wrapped up in God that they'd begun to sing spontaneously to God. Somebody said, we'll write that down. And what we experience there historically is exactly what is happening to Paul. He sees the grace. He sees the peace. He sees what he's been delivered from. He sees the cross. And he can't contain himself any longer. So he goes off on one. But he's in the middle of writing. You think, keep your concentration, Paul. You're writing to the Galatians. Get your act together. Just cut that out. Get on and write the letter. No, not Paul. Paul is taken up with grace and peace and mercy and the cross and the wonderful Jesus. And he just suddenly goes. It's like you going down Tesco's and suddenly going, God, Jesus, God, this is magnificent. And the whole bit, what are you doing? Just having a doxology. When was the last time that you had a doxology? When was the last time that you just wandering around, you know, got the bag or something, wandering through the snow, and you, you thought about the cross, and you thought about the peace, and you thought about the grace, and you thought about the forgiven sin, and you just let one fly? Do you know you were designed for doxology? That's what the, we were there. That's the idea. Paul is captivated, excited, thrilled, affected, and he just bursts forth. That, what, that is what we were designed to do. And if you are not doing it, it's because you haven't understood. Understand the cross, understand the grace. It just comes out at the most unusual. Just going to write this line to Galatians. Oh, blow, I've lost it again. It, it's that sort of thing. You're on the phone. Can you imagine this? On the phone to the boss. Suddenly this thought comes in. Forgiven. Excuse me, boss. I've just got to do this. I'm back now. But I'm all right. It's that sort of moment. Come on, Christians. We have to wake up to the wonderfulness of this. Here's a short point. But if we're going to build a vibrant, effective church... One of its foundations must be gratitude and thankfulness and spontaneous delight in Jesus. That's it. Clinton cards. Oh, come on. Just going to buy a card. What on earth are you doing, man? I'm just thinking about Jesus. It's that sort of stuff. You know, cleaning the car, watching the washing machine go, doing the ironing, whatever. Frying up the thingies. Don't fry. Grill it. Whatever. <laughs> But you know what I mean. It's that sort of stuff. Jesus comes to mind and I'm off. So what does it mean then to be delivered from the present age? This is my final point. Try and do it theologically and then we'll do it emotionally. Because I do everything a little bit like that. Okay. Here we go. Let's go through the theological thing. Until we die or until Christ returns to establish his kingdom, we live in the present evil age. 
Therefore, when the Bible says that Christ gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age, it does not mean that he will take us out of it, but he will deliver us from the power of it. That's why he prays in John 15, 7, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We've got to live in it, but you don't need to be subject to it. It's what we wake up to. We don't have to do it, do you? And the reason Jesus prays for deliverance from the evil one is that the present evil age is the age where Satan is given his last sort of atom of freedom to deceive and destroy. He's only got a little bit of freedom left and this is it. And the Bible says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's 1 John 5 verse 19. The evil one is also called the God of this world. And the main aim is to blind people from truth. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Don't you find that front? If I said to you, you know the reason that you're behaving like that? Is that you've just got blinded. No, don't talk to me like that. But that's what the Bible says. Sometimes the reason that we're doing the stuff that we are is that we've become blind. And it says it keeps them from seeing the light of the glory, sort of the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Because what it's, the implication is, if I can stop them seeing that, if I can just stop them seeing that, I've got them. They, I can get them to do whatever I want, when I want, how I want. But if they see the glory of Jesus, they ain't going to do that. So I blind their eyes. And we have to wake up to the condition in which we live in, the present evil age. We have to realize where we came from. Once you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in you, the sons of disobedience. Without knowing it, and even in it, we can, by our attitude towards the present evil age, become a lackey of the devil. Knock, knock. Yes, come in. Just sit down. Pastor, I've got this, very, this problem. The reason you've got a problem is that you've become a lackey. What? But it's true. It's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible speaks right into the 20th century present evil age. And it, draw, and it tells us that the present age of the, the fads of the 21st century will draw us in. And when it draws us in, we will forget the glory of Jesus. It will diminish. It won't look like a glory. The fun and the addictions. The Bible says this in 2 Peter 2 verse 19. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You, what? I can become enslaved. I can become imprisoned to this. And I don't know it. And the resounding cry of the Bible is this. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, you can be free from the effect of this burden. Don't be duped by the gurus of our day who are here today and gone tomorrow. 30 years is a long time. But I don't know whether you've ever thought of the things that you did do 
that, you, that now seem so stupid than the things that you fought for and cringe at. I'm now going to embarrass myself. <clears throat> it's not unusual, but I'd like to know some of the things that I fought with with my parents in, uh, in regard to the present age. I fought with my parents to have two-tone Oxford bags. We had a blazing row. It's a good job they're dead now, but they, because I don't want to... I don't, I wouldn't have, but we did. I wanted a pair of Oxford bags. They were something like 40-something inches at the bottom, and they were two-toned. So if you looked at me sometimes, they were green and red. And I fronted my parents up, somebody that would now be the age of... And I said, it's my money, I will do it. And my mother sat back and she said, and you will not have them in my house. And I said, let's try this. And now I'm thinking, I fought my mother over Oxford bags. But I did. I faced her up and I wagged my finger and she wagged my finger. And she said, they will not come in out of this house. And I'll say, they will and I will be wearing them. I... <laughs> no. No, I did have a white... I did have a white Levi jacket. I bleached it. I made it white. The young people don't understand that it becomes half bleached. I had bleached it. I put it in the bath and trod on it and made it bleached like that. When we got married, it went missing. <laughs> when you have coffee, you need to say to Kelly, where is his white denim jacket, Levi jacket? Women do that sort of thing when you get married. I don't understand. Here's some of the other things. Some of, when, when, when I, the, the class that I was in at school, I don't know what the common drink is that you do, but for, for guys, it was beer. Do you remember this, ladies, some of the older ones? Our ladies would die for brandy and baby sham. You're all looking at me thinking, no, I don't know anything about that. Don't lie, some of you. So, and when I was at school, the other thing that happened like this is that I fought my parents over platform shoes. Do you remember those things? Slade and all that sort of stuff. What? But see, don't look. You've still got them. You've walked in there. But it was a family issue. I was ready to disown my parents over platform shoes. We had an issue in our football team because our football team was half black, half white. Some of the opposition, and we were ready to leave school because our number six had an afro. Do you remember that? And what the opposition said is that the afro helped him in heading the ball. <laughs> so we were, we were ready to go on strike because of, we wanted our bloke to come with an afro. When was the last time you saw an afro? I mean, they were huge, right? Do you remember that? Massive great things. And they used to say, we're not playing him. We would run out on the pitch in our little light blue and white stuff. That was pool laser stuff. stuff. And they would go, we're not playing. He's got an afro. He's got an advantage. I don't know what they thought. They could head the ball three miles because he got an afro. I don't know what on earth that was. But we were radical. And we were going to go on strike because of, we will walk out of school. We will not play this game. We were angry over an afro. My mum and dad would not let me listen to Slade. Callie's mum and dad would not let her listen to The Partridge Family. (laughs) It's on tape. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Caroline, yes. You will not listen to The Partridge Family ever again. 
I'm a little Kelly. If you're going to go get thrown out of, going to get thrown out, get thrown out out of something, but not the Partridge family. I had an action man. He had muscles and a scar. My brother fought miners in the miners' strike. Where did that go? Do you remember those sort of things? When I first met Callie, and when I first took her out for a meal, I had a green pair of trousers, a green waist jacket, jacket, a black velvet jacket with a black shirt with a huge collar. Why? Because I was falling over. I was very influenced by Saturday Night Fever. (laughs) In our road, people had chopper bikes. I never had it. Do you remember chopper bikes? Those things, them big handles like that. I never had a chopper bike. Do you know what that meant for me in my street? Never come out with your bike. Because you just didn't. He came out with those big wheeled things and the, and the handlebars that went down like that, a racing bike, and people threw bricks at you. Why? Because we've got a chopper bike. And they had those ribbons that hang from it. And all, I thought, I will not live any longer. I, my life is at an end because I haven't got tassels on the end of my chopper bike. I lived in the day that I thought that I would be bombed by the IRA. Some of you don't remember that. You now think that you're going to be bombed by some sort of terrorist organisation that that is founded in some other country or not. I used to think that I could be bombed by the people in the next country to me. I was frightened because I was at in the days of schools where letters went into schools and the IRA put letters that they would bomb a school. We've had letters to my mum and dad saying that we might have to come home because of it. And finally, I only ever wanted a space hopper I just wanted to sit on it and just do that thing. And my mum said, you can't have one of them in the lounge. It might not... Did your mum and dad have all those things on mantelpieces? You know, loads of things like this. And then on the, on the, on, on the, where the fireplace is, we had loads of brass. She always cleaned it on a Friday. You can't have a space off it. The brass will go all over the place. I just, you know, I wanted to go get one. I just got through the house. Because all I wanted to do, and I was prepared to fight. Now, I don't know what you are fighting for. But actually, it is part of a present evil age. And in 30 years' time, you will be doing this sermon and they will be laughing at you. Some of those are serious and some of those funny, but actually, if we are going to build an effective church in Wrexham, then at its foundation, we have to reject the fads of this present evil age. We have to be a separate people, a different people, living in a different way. 
And surely the wisdom of this age is actually, in review of eternity, is bonkers. This is what the Bible says, and this is my final thought. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone is among you who thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What then is the wisdom of God in the present age? The wisdom of God in this present age is the liberating death of Jesus Christ. In the present evil age, the church stood up and said one thing. It said, they live like that, but we preach Christ crucified. Who were they saying that to? The religions, the, the life of the Romans. They were looking at them straining. We preach Christ crucified. It's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. And when Jesus went to the cross for millions to set them free, part of that was unmasking this. You see, that's why sometimes people don't want to know God too much, because it unmasks the foolishness of it. Because the closer that you get to God and the closer that you see to you, the more it unmasks it. That's why when people are struggling and they're backsliding, they don't really want to know all that, because they know that if we get that close, it just unmasks the life that's there. It's what meant by the, on the eve of the crucifixion where he said, now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. You wouldn't, you wouldn't follow a defeated foe, would you? But we do. Follow Jesus. It's more costly. But you won't have to fight for a space hopper. You'll be free. That means that we have to put the cross and Jesus prominent in our vision. The cross mustn't be one piece amongst many in our lives. Galatians 6, somebody will preach this. May it never be that I would boast. May it be that I would never glory. May it be that I would never exalt. Except in one thing, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only in the cross. What are we about? We're about only the cross. No boasting, no bragging, no exalting, no rejoicing, no thanksgiving. Only in the cross. This is the best thing. Except the cross. Why? Because every dream that we dream, every atom that shapes the future of the church, every hope-filled meeting, every plan that we form... Every notebook that somebody writes in, every pound that somebody gives, every brick that somebody lays, every person who is changed, it is done by the work of the cross. It is done by a blood-bought mercy for redeemed sinners who, apart from the cross, deserve condemnation. It is the cross. And therefore, every exaltation, every thanksgiving, every boast, every joy should be in it. And that's my final point. If we're to succeed, if we're to build a vibrant and effective church, then it has to be on the foundational work and people experiencing 
the joy of the cross. So I would like us to sing. Shall we sing when I survey the wondrous cross?